3: Hi there, I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of BBC History magazine. Welcome to our second podcast. The interview this month is with Professor Gary Sheffield of Birmingham University, who explains why the Duke of Wellington was a consummate politician as well as a battlefield maestro. Gary's feature is the cover story in the July issue of the magazine. But before we hear from him, let me just tell you what else is in that edition. Sticking with the political theme, and with Gordon Brown finally fulfilling his destiny and taking over from Tony Blair as Prime Minister, We have a fourth feature on the might-have-been-men of number 10, the politicians who came closest but didn't quite make it to the top job in British politics in the 20th century. We also have features on offer, the Saxon king with European aspirations, Garibaldi, the charismatic unifier of Italy, and on a certain Mr Bush, not the one currently occupying the White House, but a rather more surprising gentleman who 400 years ago attempted to build a flying ship. Strange story, just one of the treats that you'll find in the July issue of BBC History magazine. But for now, sit back and listen to Professor Sheffield talk about the Duke of Wellington. So, Gary, in your feature, you call Wellington the model of a political general. What do you mean by that phrase? Well, if I take you back to where this article
2: came from, just after Christmas, I was contacted the BBC about appearing in an edition of The Longview, which, as you, as you may know, is, is a programme which puts modern news into context by looking at historical parallels. In this case, what was in the news was General Sir Richard Dannett, the professional head of the British Army, who had made some comments which seemed to be critical of the government. And they wanted to look at whether this had the parallels in the past. And the, the figure they chose was Wellington, which I thought actually was a very good choice, because Wellington was... As I said, actually, I think a very political general. And what I mean by that is that he was a man who was as much of a politician as he was a general. I mean, he, he made a successful political career both before he became famous as a general and, of course, after his retirement, becoming prime minister. And he was a man who had a great deal of political skill, just alongside his undoubted military skill. And he's not unique in the British Army, in this respect, you know, in, in, in any way, but unless I think he's a very good example of a man with real political
3: skills. Hmm, OK. So, yeah, as you say, he, he obviously had these political skills, and they were clearly demonstrated in his political career after his his military career. But concentrating on his military success, how much of that was down to his political awareness away from the battlefield? I
2: think a great deal. It, it's difficult, actually, to single out any particular talent, because I think Wellington was although not perfect as a, as a commander, you know, an ex- exceptionally talented general in, in all sorts of ways. But in terms of politics, there's a couple of things I'll point out. I mean, I guess the first thing is that he was a general who did a, did a great deal of his campaigning in coalition with other armies, other powers... And so a lot of his time was spent negotiating, smoothing feathers, indeed ruffling feathers, of his allies, whether it be the Indian princes in his days campaigning in India in the 1790s and the the turn of the 19th century, or operating with the Portuguese, and effectively he commanded the Portuguese army, or at least he had it under his command, or with the Spanish, with rather less success, it must be said, And critically, of course, in the Waterloo campaign of 1815, when he had to cooperate with Blucher's Prussians. And Britain's relations with Prussia had not been particularly good before the campaign broke out. And yet Wellington, I think, had a degree of skill which enabled him to operate pretty effectively as a coalition commander. And you need actually to be politically aware to know what the art of the possible is and to cooperate with your allies. So I think his coalition commander credentials, I think, are an excellent example of of why I say he was a good good, uh, political commander. I guess the other thing is being in tune with what's happening at the government at home. Throughout the Peninsular War, the fighting in in Spain and Portugal, at least the, the first half of it... Wellington knew that the war was unpopular with some important parts of the political establishment. He feared that during the Regency, when Prince Regent took over when George III became temporarily mentally incapacitated, that they would promptly bring in the opposition who would close down Britain's war in Spain and Portugal. And he kept his contacts open with the government and was very careful to work with the government. It must be said that there are plenty of examples of, of him complaining and windering, but uh, he, I think he used his political contacts and his political nous to a very good degree. There's far more to being a successful general, particularly a commander-in-chief, than simply actually being a good soldier. You have
3: to have these political skills, and I think that Wellington had them in spades. Hmm. And so this, this political side to his character is the new thing that hasn't really been explored very much in the past. Well, it has to a degree, but I think that it tends to be submerged in admiration of his battlefield skills,
2: for example. But I think, you know, people have looked at it in the past, but it was an interesting experience to focus on this rather
3: than on some of the other factors. But what about those battlefield skills? You're not doing a hatchet job. You're not denigrating his battlefield skills by saying this. No, far from it. I think that Wellington was an excellent battlefield
2: commander. You know, there's historians have a uh, not, not a terribly helpful tendency to sort of create league tables. And there's a lot of debate about, you know, was Wellington a better battlefield commander than, than Napoleon or whatever. And I think that's terribly helpful. What I will say is I think that Wellington was extremely successful and that was built on a very sound knowledge of what fighting a battle involved and of course the, the wider aspect of campaigning, but also a great deal of innate skill. Waterloo is is the classic example. Wellington seemed to have a knack for being at the right place at the right time in all the crises of the battle. He, uh, as we'd say today, he read the battle. He understood the tempo of operation. And Wellington, I think, did at that battle and many others show himself to be really a master of the battlefield. That is why I think if you do go for a league table of, of generalship, Wellington must go very high, because actually he excelled in more than one aspect of command.
3: Did Napoleon in some way lack the political skills, do you think, or is that not um, appropriate? Well, it's, it'd be slightly strange to criticise a man who
2: made himself Emperor of France and went to dominate most of Europe for a decade or so as lacking in political skills. But I think ultimately Napoleon pushed his luck too far. Hmm. That he certainly, I think if he had greater skills, could have conciliated some of his enemies. For example, you know, he actually had a good car to play in the sense that he was seen, at least early in his, his career, as the man who had tamed the revolution. And yet once he was in power, he proved to be a megalomaniac. You know, he was never content with the status quo. He was always stretching for more. And ultimately, I think you can see him as a man who threw away the advantages he had by simply not knowing when to say no. So um, the Tsar of of Russia, for example, who was won over by Napoleon at the convention of of Tilsit in in 1807, eventually came to see that uh, Napoleon was a man whose ambitions would simply never be satisfied and therefore drove him into the opposition camp. And of course, in the end, all of Europe was up in arms against him. So Napoleon was undoubtedly a very skillful politician. But A bit like Hitler, I guess, Uh, 150 years later, he was not a man who was content to rest on his conquests. He was always stretching for more.
0: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting... Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp slash history extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
3: Okay. Now, now going back to Wellington, so we've cited his political skills and his battlefield skills. Is there anything else that you would attribute to his military victories? Was he, for instance, a a very charismatic man, a great leader of men? Well, I think he was very charismatic, and I think he was a great leader, but he certainly wasn't a touchy-feely
2: one. Mm. His, shall we say, leadership style wouldn't go down terribly well in a business school today. You know, famously, he was dismissive of, of his troops, calling them the scum of the earth, and so on and so forth. Actually, I think there was a, there's a certain amount of aristocratic disdain there, but it 's it's, it's mixed in with i think a real maybe affections going so far, but a real respect for the troops under his command. I mean he had no illusions about them, but of course, he went on famously to say, after accusing them of of, of being the scum of the earth but to say but it 's amazing what fine fellows we make of them, and he certainly was highly respected by his soldiers, if not popular, for the simple reason they knew that he, he didn't lose battles and he wouldn't throw away their lives unnecessarily. But on top of that, I mean, there are various other aspects we talk about. I guess the, the most famous one is the whole matter of, of logistics, of, uh, of getting troops from A to B and making sure that they're in supply once they get there. And he was a man who understood the absolutely critical importance of getting logistics right, the really boring stuff, getting bullet carts, uh, whether in India or Spain, hired from the local people to get ammunition and food from point A to point B. And Napoleon was notoriously lax at this, and French Napoleonic armies tended to live off the land, which made it easier for them to move around, but also, of course, run the the risk of alienating the local population by basically sort of robbing them and that was something that Wellington was uh, was never prepared to do there's a wonderful quote that Wellington came up with about his skill as an improviser which I think applies to logistics and many other things as well he said that uh, French plans were like an elaborate harness on a horse it looks great but then it breaks but he said now I make my campaigns of rope if anything went wrong I tied a knot and went on. And it's that flexibility and pragmatism and his attention to detail with things like logistics and intelligence, all of that makes
3: Wellington a, a truly great commander, in my view. Just going back to, to, that, to his leadership style and, and his rather disdainful, brusque manner with his men, was that in any way unusual for, for the time? I, I presume it was, it was very much the norm.
2: It was pretty well the norm. Other commanders like, like Picton, commander of 3rd Division, famously had a, a long-standing feud with uh, the 88th Foot, the Connaught Rangers, because they were an Irish regiment and he insulted them by calling them the, the Connaught Footpads and the rest of it. One of the few commanders actually to take a, a more, I guess we would say, enlightened view by our standards, was um, Wellington's you know, potential rival, Sir John Moore, who commanded in Spain in 1809, was killed at the Battle of Corona early in, 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 in 1809. He was a man who was associated with raising the rifle regiments and the light regiment in the uh, years before the Peninsular War, you know, hence Bernard Cornwall Sharp and all the rest of it. These were troops who were much more self-reliant and reliant on, on self-discipline and uh, a more enlightened style of leadership than was common in the rest of, of,
3: of the army. But I think Wellington was very much a man of his time, very much an aristocrat of his time, in that sense. It's interesting you should say about that, uh, John Moore, actually, because we had a letter in, in this issue with a gravestone of a chap who had fought with John Moore, or for John Moore, and on his gravestone it said he carried the torch at John Moore's funeral. So it was like <laughs> he obviously had a lot of admiration for that man.
2: Well, absolutely, and it's very interesting. I mean, one of the things I've come across recently is I've, I've actually just been appointed the regimental historian of the Rifles, which is the new regiment created from the Light Infantry and the Royal Green Jackets and, and, and two other units. And Sir John Moore is very much seen as being almost a patron saint of the new regiment because he is seen as embodying the sort of of values of self-reliance. And uh, an enlightened attitude that the new regiment wants to carry across. And of course, 2009 is the bicentenary of his death. Sir so John Moore's uh, approach and attitudes are seen as being relevant in, in the early 21st century, which I think is a, is a very interesting commentary
3: on the man and his approach. Mm. In terms of, of being relevant to the 21st century, you, you mentioned briefly this myth that British generals are, are apolitical, um, and citing Wellington as a fine example of a very political soldier. But we still have that myth, don't we? And when General Dannett made his comments earlier this year, it was much picked up So what's going on there? Why do we have this myth, and why is it still current today? Well,
2: I think it, it goes all the way back to the New Model Army and Cromwell, and the overt intervention of the military in politics. And the revulsion against such overt political activity by the military from the end of the 17th century onwards was such that no general really wanted to be seen as engaging, certainly in party politics. I think that's completely understandable, given the circumstances of the English Revolution and the 17th century. Mm. However, that has led to to this myth, as you say, that British soldiers don't get involved in politics. And, for example, when uh, Professor Hugh Strawn of the University of Oxford about ten years ago published an excellent book on the politics of the British Army, he was very heavily criticised by some people for daring to claim that there was such a thing as politics of the British Army. And, of course, there are. It doesn't tend to be overt party politics. There hasn't been a coup in Britain since the 17th century. And yet, senior soldiers, certainly, and indeed sailors and airmen, by the very nature of their jobs, they must be political. They engage with the political process. Now, this can be at um, fairly low-level politics, you know, sort of um, scrabbling for their share of the defence budget. It can be going to see senior ministers, or indeed the prime minister, to make a point about the political consequences of a certain decision for the future of the armed forces. Going you know, back in history a little bit further, you know, back to the First World War, it's clear that uh, senior soldiers were in- intervening directly in politics, for example, by um, intriguing with newspapers and sometimes opposition politicians against the government of the day. Now, that's one thing, but generally speaking, British soldiers have recognised there is a red line that you do not cross. So the British army does not have a tradition of overt involvement in politics in the same way that the French army has, for example, even down to the 1960s. But that's not to say that soldiers, sailors, and senior airmen are not politically aware. Frankly, if they were politically naive, they wouldn't be in the chopped slots in the first place, I suspect, or if they are, they wouldn't be very good. You need to have a degree of, of politicisation engagement with the political process. But That is not the same as either being party political or, of course, going the ultimate step to move in and, and, and
3: seize power from the civilian authorities. finally, just back to Wellington once more, obviously he's most famous for Waterloo as his greatest victory, but, but is that actually his greatest battlefield triumph, or should we be looking for a less famous contest? Very interesting question. I suspect that
2: Waterloo, simply because of its consequences, political and, uh, and, and international consequences, must be seen as his greatest battlefield triumph. It did put the nail in Napoleon's coffin and, uh, and so on and so forth. But I think we must remember that Wellington's army at 1815 was pretty inferior in terms to the one he commanded in Spain from 1808 to 1814 and Wellington's, I think, his personal command, that Waterloo has already mentioned, I think, was extremely good. Actually, he was very limited to what he could actually do because of the fragile and not terribly well-trained state of his army. If we're looking for an example of Wellington with his great peninsular army on top form as commander, I think we must look for a battle like Vittoria in 1813, or my personal favourite, which I think has been ...rightly described as Wellington's masterpiece, which is Salamanca, on the 22nd of July, 1812. What happens here is that Wellington and his opponent, Marshal Mamon, are manoeuvring... ...Wellington's taken the offensive into Spain, and each side is looking basically for the other to make a mistake... And then Maman makes that mistake. He overstretches his forces. According to legend, Wellington is sitting on a horse eating a chicken leg. And he spots what's going on, that the French army have have basically become overstretched. He uh, throws his chicken leg over his shoulder, again, according to legend, saying, by God, that will do. Gives a crisp series of orders, takes the offensive, and basically destroys the French army, which has very far-reaching consequences at all, uh, very far reaching consequences indeed. It ultimately ends in the liberation of Madrid, forcing uh, King Joseph Bonaparte, Napoleon's brother, who was put on the throne of Spain, to retreat, and it fundamentally undermines what's left of a French power in Spain. The fact Wellington actually then overstretches himself and is forced to retreat uh, doesn't take away from the fact that this is the crucial victory which Wellington is then able to capitalise on in 1813. All of this, of course, needs to be placed in a wider context. This is when Napoleon is in Russia, and we all know what happened to his army in 1812, and so the result of, of Wellington's victory in Spain allied to the catastrophic defeat that napoleon suffers in russia puts napoleon onto the back foot and really can be seen as the beginning of the end so in terms of of tactical excellence and indeed in long-term political consequences i think salamanca probably rates as wellington's greatest victory
3: fantastic well thanks very much professor sheffield for that insight into wellington and of course you can read more about this in the july issue of bbc history magazine thank you very much